Hello and welcome to Overtime, presented by Vitalsy. This program will bring you close-up profiles of world-class athletes and explore their playing careers and their respective journeys following their playing days. Who better to reinvent, rediscover, and reimagine themselves than athletes? How does a young man from the tough side of Philadelphia overcome numerous cultural obstacles to become one of basketball's premier showmen, a man who dazzled on the court and became a leader off the court, fighting racial obstacles to become one of the game's greatest ambassadors and an entrepreneur in many fields throughout his life? Earl Monroe was much more than a basketball player. He was a showman who developed a style of play that left impressions on everyone that saw him. A man who overcame the tough streets of Philadelphia, racial inequality, social injustice, and became one of the sport's most beloved icons. A winner, a leader, a man who never backed down and showed by example the true meaning of a champion. Earl Monroe was much more than a showman. He was a person who not only led by example, but also became an example to others. A man designated as one of the top 75 players ever to step on an NBA court. Hello, Mr. Monroe. Hello there. How you doing, Lance? Nice good, 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 good. Well, thank you for coming, Earl. Thank you for being here. Let's start your journey on the tough streets of Philadelphia. When you started off, you played basket, uh, baseball and soccer first. How did you, number one, become interested in basketball? And what was life like? out in Philadelphia. Well, I tell you, that introduction, Lynn, uh, you know, at this age, it almost seems like an obituary. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. <laughs> it wasn't intended that way, Earl. No, 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 no. No, I, you know, I started playing um, uh, soccer back in uh, junior high school. And, you know, prior to that, I also started, you know, playing uh, baseball. So, you know, those are the two sports that I was really interested in. I actually started shooting the, the basketball at uh, what they call then was our vacation Bible school, which was down the street from me. And it's, it's interesting, you know, uh, the correlation between vacation Bible school and a nickname that I got later on, which is Black Jesus. So I started this whole thing, you know, at vacation Bible school. But, you know, the streets of Philadelphia, you know, they were all, you know, like in any inner city, it was tough. But, um, you know, the, the good thing about that is that I always had sports to kind of move me out of different things and put me in the right direction. Now, one of the most important figures in your life was your mother. How did she influence you at a young, early age to become the man you would become? Well, my mother was my heart. And, you know, even after all these years, she still is. She's been uh, gone since 1973. And I speak about her all the time. So, yeah, she, she always believed in me. Uh, you know, I was the middle child. Uh, I was the only boy. I had two sisters, but I was the pet of the family. Everybody kind of catered to me, and and she was uh, no different. And uh, she uh, kind of made life a little easier for me, explained so many things to me. And, um, you know, the catalyst really for me being a basketball player. Uh, when I first started playing basketball, uh, they used to dog me. I mean, I mean, really dogged me. I couldn't, I couldn't play. People laughed at me, so forth and so on. But it was, you know, my mother who gave me this little notebook. And she told me to write all the names down, all, all these guys who were treating me bad, dogging me out. And uh, as I got better than them, I would scratch those names off. 
And that was a great impetus in terms of getting better. And not only getting better, but seeing that I was getting better because I kept scratching those names off. Now, one of the things you did learn was a, a style of basketball that kind of came with the schoolyard, uh, the evolution of the schoolyard style of play. Um, you took that, you learned, you went to uh, John Bartnam High School. Um, what was the experience like developing your own kind of style of basketball? Players had played schoolyard style, but you took it to a different level and you added a few more elements. Well, everything was in the schoolyards back in those days. Uh, there wasn't that many, um, you know, organized uh, um, teams and such. Um, I happened to play on a team, though, of, you know, contemporaries, guys like myself, the same age. And, um, you know, we kind of learned the game together. Um, those guys, you know, even now are still my friends. And we speak, to, you know, to each other all the time. But was in a I'm sorry, was that the Trotters? That was the Trotters. Yes, it was. That was the Trotters. The Globetrotters, because <laughs> you've never seen the Globetrotters play. You just evolved that name out of your friendship with these guys and what you wanted to accomplish. Exactly. And and these guys, you know, like I said, you know, we weren't the biggest team, you know, that you could think of, but we were guys who were learning the games, learn the game together. And by learning the game together, we became students of the game. And that was really, you know, how I got better. I mean, the things that worked in the, in the schoolyard for me, I kept. And the things that didn't work for me, I discarded. And we challenged each, each other. And we were a real good team. We got to be a, you know, we, we used to be teams that came in from out of town. We used to be teams that were always around, you know, in South Philly, which is where I was from. Then we traveled to North Philly, then to West Philly. And we were a pretty formidable team. And, uh, you know, I just credit that to our closeness, first of all, because, you know, if you're not close with guys, you're not going to be winning. It's all about chemistry in the game. Uh, but secondly, you know, that we learned the game together and we understood what we were doing. Now, a couple of things that you started dealing with at a very young age were some of the violence in and around some of the streets of Philadelphia, and you became aware of racism. How did you deal with both? Well, very poorly, Evan. <laughs> it seems like. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, there were so many, you know, gangs was was really a part of of, of, of Philadelphia. You know, you had gangs that, you know, on your block, you had gangs that were, you know, two or three blocks away. They were all different gangs. And uh, the, name, the game was to try and weave your way through and know where you need to go. You didn't go to certain places because you know there was going to be a fight or something like that or you're going to get beaten up. So consequently, we stayed pretty much in our in our little area. And when we did travel out, we knew where we were going. Uh, we used to play uh, against uh, some guys like I was on 26th Street and they, you know, we played against guys on 19th Street. It's right, right up the block, but you know, we had to, we we might have had to fight our way up there, and then um, too, when we played against the white teams, we had to go through their playgrounds, and then we had to fight our way back home. So you know, it was always gangs in Philadelphia, and we used to always say, when it got to be around March, and you know, the race riot starts, you know, we would say, uh oh, must be March. <laughs> because that's when it happens. <laughs> but uh, one of the things you did start to work on was something you'd be known for, and that was your spin move and your double spin move. How did that come about? Well, actually, I was playing uh, with with some older guys, and a guy, um, uh, Ron Ford, pulled me aside to say, "Listen, I like what you're doing with that. Uh, let me let me show you how to to do a spin." And so when I went to do this spin, he showed me and, you know, it was do it with your right hand and then get the ball with your left hand as you spin. And as I was doing it, I tripped over my feet <laughs> and I kept the ball in one hand. 
and that one hand seemed to be quicker than than going around. So essentially, the one hand made the circle that I was going smaller. When I did it with two hands, it made that circle bigger. So that made the smaller circle a quicker move. And so that's how it developed, and I just kind of kept that. Now, you became very, very proficient, not only at that, but some of your other unique Earl Monroe, razzle-dazzle style of play. When you get to high school, though, you don't start right away, right? You, you sat on the bench for a while. Um, how did that make you feel? Well, not that great. <laughs> uh, I played, I played junior, junior varsity uh, in my 10th grade. I played junior varsity in, uh, in 11th grade. And on the day that I had the, my best day ever, in practice for the varsity team, I get I get cut, and uh, and so I go play with the JV team for the first half of the season. The second half of the season, I get brought up to varsity, and I'm starting right away. And so I start that half of the season. Uh, we went to our the uh, city championship game. Uh, I thought we were we should have won that game. But uh, we happened to play uh, St. Tommy Moore on, <laughs> on a day with, when O'Malley and O'Sullivan were, were refereeing. <laughs> so we didn't win that game at all. We lost by two or three points. But, uh, you know, it gave me an impetus as to what was going to go on for me in my senior year. And when I, you know, my senior year came about, uh, my guys, a couple of my guys who were on the Trotters, were, we were also on, you know, the JV and, and then the varsity. Uh, we started to really gel and we played really well in our senior year. Now, you led the, that led the city in scoring. You became well known. People started to come see your high school basically because they heard about this kid who was not just a basketball player but he was an entertainer and he was a magician on the court. You became quite legendary within that framework. You have a really good senior year and you start to think about college. At that particular point, you started to think about playing at the next level. Um, what happened after you graduated? Um, you didn't get many scholarship offers and it's something that, that hurt you. What exactly went on? Well, um, Something that I found out a little later on is that um, the scholarship scholarship offers that I got, uh, my coach was holding from me. And uh, the only ones that I got, they came straight to me. And um, so, but be that, you know, it didn't much matter because, you know, I went to Temple Prep and I tried to, you know, play against the, back in those days, you had to play against the freshman teams because freshmen weren't allowed to play, you know, uh, varsity, uh, you know, in the college when they started college. So we played against the freshman teams and I was, you know, I was pretty good against those guys. And I just felt as though, you know, it, I wasn't getting much out of that. So I dropped out of, uh, uh, you know, prep school and I started working at a knitting mill. And uh, that was that was a tough job. <laughs> and let me know that that was not what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. Now, also, once you decided that you, you know, eventually wanted to go to college and wanted to further your game, um, you looked in some different places. One of the places that you looked was down in North Carolina at Winston-Salem State Teachers College. Tell us about how that came about. Well, in those days, you know, guys who played at those colleges down in North Carolina, at HBCUs, they were pretty much the scouts for the coaches. And so we had guys that had played uh, and come from Philadelphia who had played down at Winston-Salem. And a particular guy by the name of Leon Whitley had seen me play and in high school, and he asked me when I was in high school if I wanted to go to Winston-Salem. And I told him, you know, I didn't know anything about that. I wasn't going to do that at that time. And, um, and when I finished up, before I went to uh, Temple Prep, I was going to try out for what they call the ABL, 
which is American Basketball League, because I felt maybe I was that good. And thank goodness that league folded when I was supposed to try out. <laughs> and I wasn't able to do that because I definitely wasn't able to, you know, wasn't ready to play professional basketball. But this guy came back to me later on after, you know, I had played against all these uh, freshman teams and also played in what they call the Philadelphia the gold medal tournaments and things like that, did, did extremely well. And he came back and asked me again when I was working at the knitting mill. And I told him, hey, you know, I'll go down if if, if my man could go with me, who was another guy who was all the, also on the trotters with me. And That's that's Smitty? Yeah, it was Smitty. Yeah. And, um, and you know, he's, he came back to me later on and said, you know, I think I can work that out. But, you know, the interesting thing was that I thought we were going down. I thought we had scholarships going down there. But, uh, you know, we didn't have scholarships. We were going down there kind of on a look-see. And if we were able to make the team, then – we would get scholarships or partial scholarships. So we went down, I mean, my man, Smitty, we got on a train in August and uh, went down there, one trench coat between us, and uh, got down there and, and, you know, finally met Coach Gaines. We didn't know Coach Gaines. I didn't even know his name. We were just going to school. All I can say when I my last day at uh, the knitting mill, they, when I came in and and I was dressed up, and the, the foreman said, oh, "Why are you so dressed up?" I said, "I'm going to college." He said, "Well, it's eleven o'clock. You might as well go at twelve. You might as well get off at twelve. You're not going to make this whole day. We're not going to pay you for this whole day." So <laughs> uh, that was you know that was my trek you know going down to Winston Salem and uh, finally meeting Coach Gaines. Now, Coach Gaines wasn't he also the football coach? Coach Gaines was a football coach, the track coach, and everything. He was the uh, you know the uh, athletic director, and he was he was he was Winston Salem State. And anybody that you know you talk to, you know, always talked about Big House. And he was he was just that kind of a guy. So, but now, did he know when he when you first got down there that he had something special, that he had something very unique that would really kind of put Winston Salem on the map? Did he know that? I don't think he. You know, he didn't know. He had never seen me play. First of all, so you know, like I said, we were going down there it was like a look see. So I think. You know, after we played, because we had to play against, uh, not the team, but we had to play against guys who were, you know, around in Winston-Salem. So uh, I guess he thought, you know, I had a little skill. And um, I remember, you know, when they told us that, okay, um, go to the um, uh, uh, administration and we're going to start your process into getting into Winston-Salem. And me and my man, you know, we, we were in the gym and uh, his number was number seven. I was number five. And we are, were announcing ourselves and starting for Winston Sailor, number five, Earl Monroe, and starting at the other guard, Steve Smith. And uh, that was, you know, how elated we were that we were actually going to be in school. Um, it... Uh, I don't know if he thought he had anything at that time, but uh, it, it proved out pretty well for him. Now, you really put Winston-Salem on the map. I mean, you, your teammates, but again, it was seeing you as a special kind of entertainer on the court. You evolved a style that resonated with fans. All of a sudden, people were coming from all over to see you guys, to see you play. Um, you were a scorer. You were a leader on the court. The team played well. Um, the team went to heights, went, went to tournaments that they'd never been to before. And all of a sudden, Earl Monroe must have thought, hey, I might be something special. Did that happen during those years? Well, it happened, you know, uh but I was kind of following in the footsteps of a guy who had been in Winston-Salem before, a guy by the name of Cleo Hill. 
Cleo Hill was the number one draft pick of the, uh, uh, at that time, the St. Louis Hawks. And he had, you know, played and, and somehow he got blackballed uh, from playing in the NBA. And so as I played and Coach Gaines knew what was going on, you know, it was kind of directing me not to make the same mistakes. And as we played and I, my so-called notoriety got bigger and bigger, um, you know, it was even more profound that, you know, I tried to kind of stay in a certain lane to try and make sure that I was going to be all right to go to the NBA. It was it was interesting. But, you know, the most important thing that I, I found about college is that I love college. I love being with the guys. I love playing with the guys. And for the most part, the most the thing that I'm probably most proud of is the fact that I graduated from college on time. So, you know, that wasn't something that I really had gone to college to do. I had gone to college to play basketball. But I found that it was something more than just basketball, you know, in college. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm pretty proud of this. Uh, um, as a matter of fact, it's right back here on this side. That's my diploma. <laughs> <laughs> now, one of the things, Earl, that also evolved within you, um, probably as a student, but as a student of life, was that you really, really, really started to become aware and also involved in the fight for racial equality. You were you had identified with a lot of the leaders, the Malcolm X's, uh, the Martin Luther King's. They became heroes of yours. As a matter of fact, you almost went to the big Washington march where he gave the famous speech. Um, how did that come about, and what did that instill in you as a person and also as a basketball player? Well. You know, I, one of the things that I'm, I'm so sorry that I didn't do was go to the March on Washington because I was I was I was supposed to I was working at the knitting mill at the time and they gave the, you know guys off to go to the March on Washington. Somehow I didn't go, and um, and so I missed Martin Luther King then. Then he was in Winston Salem, and I missed him again because we were out of town, and. Um, I never really got a chance to 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 meet him. You know, I, I, I felt as though I needed to really dialogue with him because his words really resonated with me. You know, it, it was, when I was working at the knitting mill, it was a little guy who used to run the elevators and he used to wear a tam and he used to have a pipe in his mouth all the time. And he spoke about, you know, equality and things of that nature. And that was before I went to school. And I used to tell him, I said, I used to say, well, listen, we can't think about, you know, equal rights, equality and whatnot. Um, you know, the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court decision had just been activated in 1954 and we've been here 200 years. So we can't expect to have it that quickly. And then I went to college and then I knew and realized that. I had really made a mistake talking to this gentleman. And so reading Martin Luther King's speeches, being aware, being in Winston-Salem and knowing all the things that were going on around me, you know, propelled me to do other things, you know, trying to go out into the rural areas and get people to vote and things of that nature. Uh, it was uh, a real learning experience. And I think that because of the, that time, a period that I've lived in and, and the things that I've done and seen is a big part of who I am today because it really kind of painted a picture for me and made me understand and realize, you know, that as things go on, you know if things are changing or if they're not or how, I guess, quickly they're changing or if they're going back. Words. And that's where I'm at at this point. I mean, in my life, I'm seeing things that, you know, I could have, you know, might have seen back in the 60s happening again. And it's disheartening, but at the same time, you know, it's reality. So, one of the things that happened at Winston Salem 
was a sports writer, local sports writer, saw you put together a string of very impressive games, scoring, leading. I think there were about 10 games in a row. And all of a sudden, he writes that these games were Earl's Pearls. Now, well, that was the beginning of a nickname that has stuck with you forever. Yeah, How did that come about exactly in your own mind? What did you think about that? Well, I didn't really, I, I didn't think about it because I you know I had other nicknames already. And it wasn't, you know, I guess, you know, I, I guess the reality of it is that people started calling me the Pearl from the article. And interestingly enough, uh, the gentleman that's, that's taking credit for, uh, had taken credit for it just passed away um, last year. Um, he also is, is credited with giving Pistol Pete, the Pistol Pete. Really? Yeah. And, uh, you know, Pistol and I seem to have had our, our paths crossed a lot, of, you know, since he played in North Carolina as well as, as a uh, high school kid. So, you know, it, it was interesting. I mean, my first game of that, of that year, I think I scored like 30 points. Then the next year I had 33. And then it, and then that's when it really started. I mean, I, I hit 68 and then 58 and then 53, so forth. And that was, you know, that gave him the wherewithal to start writing about what scores were against different teams. And the caption, these are Earl's Pearls. These are Earl's Pearls. And the rest, as they say, is history. <laughs> now, a couple of things happened at that particular time. Uh, you graduate from college and in between college and uh, becoming a professional um, there was a guy that uh, by the name of Matt Jackson that mm -hmm. you had come into contact with in some different ways but there was always this dream it was like almost like two great heavyweight fighters he was a certain type of player you were a certain type of player People wanted to see you square off against each other and have a one-on-one -on -one battle. And that finally happened in that summer. Tell us about that and how that changed you as a guy. <laughs> I don't know if it changed me. I, you know, I, I guess I started patting myself on the back a little bit more. <laughs> but uh, Matt Jackson was, uh, it was about a six-foot-five uh, forward. Um, very classic player, you know, the classic jump shot movement. Not not very fast, but, you know, just a classic player with the shot and how he moved. And, of course, I was playing, you know, my, I used to call it Lottie Dog game. And um, people wanted to see, you know, square off. We were both from South Philadelphia. He went to South Philly High, went to Bartram. And um, we kind of squared off one day at the playground called Landreth. Actually, it's a school called Landreth in, in their schoolyard. And that's where we played it on the weekends and things of that nature. Um, Matt, uh, you know, he was he was a pretty good player. He had led the city, city in scoring the year before I did. So, you know, he had a little, you know, macho going with him as well. But um, we squared off. I mean, that little place was filled with people, and, and there were even people. Uh, there were trees. There were people up in the trees that were <laughs> looking at this game. You know, all the fences and whatnot. And um, so we always played the twenty-one. You know, make it, take it. You know, and the two of us, uh, we just went at it. And uh, uh, fortunately, I guess uh, for me, you know, I, I, I won out, and um, you know, I had. Gave me a bigger reputation, you know, as so so called the king of South Philadelphia, and um, that made me very proud. I mean, because in Philadelphia, you know, there's sections: there's South Philly, there's North Philly, there's West Philly, and you know, generally you don't really go out of your section, but it it enabled us to it enabled me to move ahead to the North Philly where all the other 
big players were playing, you know, then to Westville, that's where Will Chamberlain and those, all those guys were from. So it, um, you know, put me on a different echelon and, um, you know, I kind of wore that, that crown for a long while. Now, another event happened that really wasn't quite as pleasant for her, for you. You, you tried out for the Pan American Games, and it didn't quite go the way you felt it should have gone, and it wasn't because of your basketball talent. Walk us through that, okay? Well, in the Pan American Games, trying out for those games, you know, they have different, uh, they have the NCAA players, uh, they have the college division players. Back in those days, they had the AAU players as well. And so they have this tournament where you play against each other. And from that tournament, you know, guys get picked to play on the Pan American team. And for me, it was great because we had we were small colleges and we had guys that, um, you know, actually were number one picks later on. Um, uh, Al Tucker went to Seattle. Um, and, and, uh, forget, uh, my other guy, he went to Milwaukee, but we were, you know, we were not expected to win. So, but we won the whole tournament, Elvin Hayes and all those guys, the bigger college guys were, were, were on those other teams and things of that nature. So we won out, um, I actually led the whole thing in scoring and assists. And uh, when they started picking a team, I was the only one that wasn't picked, um, you know, from my team. So uh, when they asked why it was that, you know, I didn't get picked, they told me my game was too black. And so I wore that as, as a little chip on my shoulder after that when I, start, when I started at the NBA to play and to let people know that I could really play it and, and that that snub didn't, didn't, didn't matter that much. Well, and that stayed with you. It stayed with you for a while. And it was one of those things that helped to make you better as a man. Now, yeah. now the NBA draft comes. You are picked number two in the whole draft by the Baltimore Bullets. Uh, did you expect to go that high? Did you expect to be the guy, the second player in the NBA draft? I didn't even really know. I mean, I just, first of all, I didn't have an agent. So, I, you know, it wasn't about, you know, kind of knowing where, where you were going to be picked and, 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 you know, things like that. I um, just happened to, you know, I knew I knew a guy scoring forty some points a game had to be picked somewhere, <laughs> and and I thought that maybe I was going to go to another team, um, but the bullets came down. And interestingly enough, I re, I remember seeing the bullets play on TV when when I was in college, and I saw Gus Johnson coming out, uh, you know, from the corner and doing a windmill dunk, and I said to myself, "Wow." I love to play with that guy. And so it just so happens that, um, you know, the Bullets came by uh, my house the, the night before uh, the draft. I was out and I came in. I wondered why the lights were on in, in the house. And it, it was the general manager and another couple guys with him. And they told me they were going to pick me in the draft. They wanted me to come from, I was in Philly at that time, come to New York with them. Well, I did. I had just come in the house. I didn't have anything and, and on whatever. So they said, "Just come on, we'll take you." So we got in the car, drove up to New York, and um, we waited for the draft and uh, for them to pick me number two. And so you get picked by the Bullets, and your first coach was a really good former NBA player by the name of Gene Shue. And Gene Chu really had an impact on you. Um, what did Coach Chu teach you, tell you, to help prepare you for life in the NBA? Well, first of all, in order to make the team, you had to beat Gene. Gene played against everybody. So he was still playing basketball and whatnot. And that was good because, you know, you, you learn a lot of the, the tricks from the older guys that you could utilize, you know, during the course of the game. 
Um, Gene was a guy that um, that understood the game. He had a little spin too, but his spin was with two hands and and, and not the uh, one hand, you know, variety that I did. But he was uh, he just he kind of explained the game to me, and I remember that I was doing passes because I used to pass the ball, no look passes and things like that. And guys weren't able to pick the passes up, and they would go out of bounds, or they hit the guy in the hands or the head. And so Gene pulled me aside one day and said, "Listen, Earl, um, you know these, these are some great passes. I'm telling you, but you know if they can't catch them, if they don't know they're coming, if they can't catch them, then they're bad passes." So. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> you know, so you know, I said, "Okay, Gene, I know what to do for that that aspect." So I won't pass as much as you know, and uh, you know, he just kind of explained the game to me in in, in that regard. Uh, Gene was a, a a really really good coach because he understood the players. He understood the players that he had, and uh, I was fortunate enough to go to a team that was able to utilize my my talents early on as opposed to sitting around and, and waiting. Um, you know, I I didn't start at the beginning of the year. Um, Don Old was the starting uh, shooting guard, whatever guard. Back in those days, we weren't shooting guards or what, or point guards per se, we were just guards. And after a few games into the season, they traded Don and I was able to, you know, get in that position and start it. Now, life in the NBA back in those days was not like life in the NBA today. Uh, you you talk about some of the plane rides you took, some of the gyms you played in, some of the showers you went in. It certainly wasn't the glamorous life that we now associate with current NBA players. No, I no. As a matter of fact, you talk about a plane ride. I, I remember coming for, uh, to. New York, on uh, I think it was North Central Airlines, and um, the window blew out. And, <laughs> and, and, as we were coming in, the window blew out, and the the, the stewardess went out. It had this board that they put up against the window, so it would suck everything out 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 the uh, cabin. And, you know that was an experience. But even more so, coming into New York with the traffic. That was worse than flying in on North Central. The traffic was horrendous. He's trying to get around in New York, and that was that was an interesting thing in a nutshell. I um, you know there there were showers. You know, they, like you said, like in Cincinnati, you had to walk on boards and whatnot in the shower. You know, to take showers and whatnot. Uh, uh, same thing. You had to wear gloves almost in in, in Chicago, Chicago Stadium. You had to wear gloves because it was so cold in there. Um, you know, it definitely wasn't like, it's not like what they, the experience is today. The experience today is is, is one that, uh, you know, obviously is luxury, but at the same time, you know, guys who are able to play the game, they, 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 they wouldn't have lasted back in the day. <laughs> now, your bullet team was a good team, solid team, tough team hard-nosed team, uh, was the kind of a team that needed a little pizzazz, which you gave it, and you also gave it leadership. You had a lot of leaders on that team, and you guys were very, very successful. Um, you wind up going to the finals in 1971 to play against Oscar and Mr. Lou Alcindor, a.k.a. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Um, what did you take away from that team? How did you blend in well with it? And how? what did you learn as a man learning from the, the, the great veterans that you were associated with? Well, you know, the, the, the team itself was one that I, I felt was a good team. It took a, a while for us to gel. Um, we, um, I think um, the first half of the season was about learning, learning each other. Uh, and my, this is my rookie year, and learning each other. And then the second half of the year, we actually had the best record in the NBA, uh, which brought us to the next season when we get Wes Unsell. And so we went, you know, that season, we, we the season before that, we were last place. And then 
we go to first place with West also. So, you know, it gives us the, the uh, momentum. Um, it gives us the, it makes us realize that we are good enough to play in this game. And, um, you know, having the courage and, and so forth and so on to, to play the game like we like we we wanted to play. You know, we were get up and down, you know, type of type of squad. And one thing that I learned, you know, my first years, you know, as any rookie who comes in, it's a matter of, you know, establishing yourself, letting people know that you can play. Um, I did that as me and rookie of the year. And then my second year was even better year, and it was a continuation of that. But as as I started to you know uh, get into the third year, our team was actually better, and you know the things that I was doing, I didn't have to do as much, and I understood that you know you know I had to give up some of the stuff that I was doing so that other people could do things. And I think that bode well in terms of what our team was about. It, it made, you know, everyone sacrifice something to try and make our team better. And then by our fourth year, we were in the, um, we were in the, in the you know, championship games. And by that time, you were one of the most entertaining players in the league, as well as a great team addition to the Bullets. But... After that finals appearance against Milwaukee, uh, things soured in Baltimore. Uh, by that time, you'd met Larry Fleischer. Um, you were looking kind of for a change. And you kind of put out some feelers about changing teams. Um, you let it be known that you wanted to be traded to either Philadelphia, Chicago, Los Angeles, or you even did your due diligence with the ABA Indiana Pacers. What was that like, kind of leaving the bullets and maybe taking the next step in your career? Well, it, you know, that was a very pivotal part of my life. Um, yes, uh, you know, it was said that I wanted to move, but it was a contract year, and I didn't really want to move. I mean, you know, Larry put out, you know, different things in terms of, you know, oh, we might want to move, you know, and he spoke with the management and so forth. And management wasn't ready for me to move all out of there as well. As a matter of fact, uh, in, in uh, August or September of that year, you know, they traded for Archie Clark. And what they said was that now we have the best backcourt in the NBA. So they were ready for me to be there, and uh, I was ready to be there. I mean, it was, you know, it was home for me at that point. And then there were some things that were said in the papers and so forth and so on that um, I didn't like, and that was kind of like the reason why we we took the the road that we took. And it just so happened we were playing the Knicks. Um, that third or fourth game of the season, and Larry called me and said, "Earl, I want you to stay home." I said, "Stay home." <laughs> he said, "Yeah, just stay home. Don't answer the phones. Just stay home, and you know we'll talk afterwards." And uh, that's what happened. I I stayed home, and, and like it's like all hell broke out. You know, people were calling, and and, and it was just unbelievable. Yeah. You had always had incredible battles with the Knicks in the playoffs, regular season. They were rivals. They were a team that you went to battle with. Um, you really weren't that keen about becoming a Nick initially, correct? No, no. I mean, you know, they were, like, a, as I always say, they were our mortal enemy. And uh, when Larry said, well, listen, um, I was out in Indiana at, with the Pacers at I'm, I was at the Pacers game, and I'm uh, thinking of signing with the Pacers. They had a good team as well, and they were they were ready to sign sign me. And um, it, it just so happened when, when, after the game, I I saw the guys reaching up in the in the lockers, in the top of the lockers, and they were getting guns out. And I said, "Oh, what's up with that?" 
<laughs> and so, of course, we didn't have cell phones. So I went and found a, a pay phone uh, in, in the uh, stadium. And I called and I said, Larry, I don't think this is the place for me. And <laughs> he said, well, you know, well, I just got an offer from the Knicks. I said, the Knicks? He said, well, yeah. yeah. I said, well, no, no. I said, no, I'm not going to the Knicks. He said, well, listen, Earl, just think about it. You know, the next morning I got on a flight to Philadelphia. And I stayed in Philadelphia for the next couple of days. And um, I talked with my guy, Sunny Hill, talked with my mom. And um, kind of we decided that, you know, hey, um, all the things that I might have wanted to do and, and, and be about, um, I wasn't going to be able to do with the Knicks. Um, but for me... I was a basketball player. I could play under any circumstances. This is what I. This is why I kept saying, and um, so eventually, yes, I, um, I I came to the Knicks, and um, there I was. Now, our good mutual friend Gwen Bloomfield, who was the assistant to Red Olsman, told me that at that particular time, that this trade was very very secret. That it was very very hush hush. You know, they were trading two of their more popular players to the Bullets for you. Um, the deal finally goes down. You become a Nick. You go up there and you come in contact for the first time as a player and mentor with Red Holtzman. What were your first impressions with Red? And did you think you could mesh into his very regimented system um, as a player? Well, first, I was very reluctant, you know, because of Red. Um, I, um, in the All-Star game the previous year, I, I was a starting guard along with Clyde, and I hit my first two or three shots, and I, <laughs> and I came out. I didn't play anymore until the second half. So <laughs> I was very, you know, reluctant uh, in, in that regard. But, um, you know, when I came in, you know, we had a, a talk, you know, prior to me signing. And I was comfortable enough to say, uh, "Okay, I could, I, I could, I could play here." Um, the thing that I wanted them to do was, I didn't want to start, and I told him that because Dick Barnett was a starter, and I didn't want to step on Dick's, you know, toes. Um, you know, Dick was another guy from an HBCU, so I didn't feel as though, you know, it was for me. I said, "I'll work my way up, work my way into the lineup." And um, that's pretty much what I did. Um, you know, we um, we played. Um, I came off the bench. Uh, <laughs> a real bad year as far as I was concerned. But at the same time, you know, it started, um, you know, to start to gel, you know, later on in the season. Now, one of the things you were also dealing with, which was something that you dealt with not only then, but throughout your entire life, were physical ailments. You had bone spurs. You had knee issues. Um, that started to slow Earl the Pearl down. I mean, how did you deal with that as a person? Well, when I got there uh, to New York, I told Red, I said, listen, I, I need surgery because I've got these bone spurs. And so Red said, well, uh, you're going to have to play through that uh, because, we, you know, we just traded for you. Willis is out. You know, this is another reason why we got you, you know, with, with another attraction here. And so I said, okay. And so I played, you know, that year with the Bone Spurs. And then after the season, I had surgery. Um, you know, that's, that's, you know, even today, <laughs> even today, in 2022, I just took medicine about for those bone spurs. So, you know, that's been something that's been with me, you know, all these years. Um, but, you know, the experience and, and of being, you know, there, and, and, you know, with the Knicks, uh, uh, having played with, with Gene Shu, uh, it made me be a little more cognizant of the game itself. Uh, it took me back to the Trotters where we were students of the game. And it took me back to that time. And that's what I got to be even more so with the, with the New York Knicks, you know, because I think that as you sit around and you, and you see your, your um, career, then you start to know that uh, there are things that you can do 
and there are things that you can't do. And that was a good thing for me to know. Now, one of the things you did was you changed your game. You changed your personality a little bit um, to mesh into the team. I mean, in the, the Bullets, you'd been number 10. Obviously, Clyde had number 10. You became number 15. But you said to yourself, okay, I'm going to become a Nick in this system. Now, one of the great things about it was all of your teammates, and there were many Hall of Famers in that locker room, they all embraced you. They all wanted you. They all loved the fact that you were now a Nick. Um, guys like DeBusher and Bradley and guys like Jerry Lucas and your best friend, Deeminger. I mean, everybody wanted Earl the Pearl to be part of a Nick, as well as Nick fans. I mean, one of the things that you embraced was not only Madison Square Garden, but you became a lifelong lover of New York City. New York City became your home, and it is to this day. Explain to us what New York meant to you then and why you've stayed all these years. Well, you know, it's um, the city itself was, you know, obviously a very vibrant city. Um, but I saw, you know, I had a lot of friends here, um, you know, and it just seemed to be, you know, my kind of my kind of town. I remember coming in, you know, the, the first day driving into New York and um, it must have been around 10 or 11 o'clock at night. And it seemed like it was daytime you know, with all the people out. And uh, I remember when I was in Baltimore, I used to just go for drives, you know, 10, 11 o'clock at night. And there would be no one out, you know, but I was still up. So I, found, I said, when I got here, I finally found a place that, you know, where, you know, I'm not a strange person. You know, if I wanted to get up and go somewhere at 10, 11, or 12 o'clock at night, you know, I wouldn't be looked at like, oh, where's he doing out? Um, and, and, you know, I just, you know, embrace the city. I, I've always, um, wherever I've been, I've always embraced the city. I, um, be, I became a New Yorker. I remember there was a song back in those days called Native New Yorker. And I used to sing that song all the time and because that's what I felt myself as being. And um, it's, it's, it's a place where, you know, I, I think that as a young person, it's certainly a place, um, you know, even today that, you know, intrigues you and you want to be a, a, you want to be around it. You want you want to know all the things that, you know, that encompasses, you know, being in the city. And, um, you know, I might not feel the same way about it as an older person here, um, because I see, you know, so many things that I, as, as an older person that I probably would not like to be seeing. Um, but at the same time, you know, I'm still here and I've been such an integral part of this city, uh, in, in my own mind, um, that, um, you know, it's, it's home. Now you go to the finals, your first year, you lose to the Lakers. The next year you get to the Holy Grail. You win the NBA championship. You are now an immortal. You are a person that won a ring. How did that make you feel, and how important to that was to you? Well, it's, it was obviously very important to me to win. Um, you know, you know, it, it's, you know, you have to think of me in in terms of I take things pretty much for granted. Um, you know, this is the way it is. I never really seemed like I never really planned things out per se. Uh, I just you know followed the bouncing ball. Um, but at the same time, I, I've, you know, I understand, you know, what the legacy is about being here. And I think that that's, uh, that's, you know, what's really important, you know, and I, and I tell you, winning the NBA championship was important, you know, winning the, the college championship was even more important to me because, you know, in, in that instance, you with, with guys that you live with. You know, you're going to school, which you're actually with all the time. In the NBA, you're just with guys doing the games, you know, and maybe at a, at a function or a dinner every now and then. But 
the thing in a nutshell about this whole thing is it being in New York is that the guys that I play with, we're still friends. We're still the same. And uh, we just did a, 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 a Zoom call with uh, with with the captain, you know, Willis, with uh, um, Phil and, and 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 Bill, Clyde and Dick Barnett. I mean, you know, after all these years, we're still here. We're still doing this thing. And, you know, the great thing about all this is the fact that because we were who we were and whatever the case may be, we're still the same people we were back then. Still kidding people about the same thing, <laughs> still laughing at people about the same things, and it's almost like we just stepped off the off the boat yesterday and came back. Now your career winds down. You finally decide, you know, toward the, the latter part of the seventies, um, that it's time probably to move on physically, emotionally. You're ready to become something else other than a basketball player. Um, you know, part of your genes is to be an entertainer. You've always entertained, not only on the court, but off the court. Um, music has always been a part of your life. Film was a part of your life. Um, how did you take the next steps towards that career after basketball? Well, you know, I, I had started a company um, back in like the late 70s, um, Tiffany Entertainment Corporation. And um, had, you know, guys that were actually a guy that played with me on Baltimore Bullets, uh, uh, Barry Orms, and another guy named Dick Scott, who used to be with um, uh, Motown, but now he was with CBS, and they both worked for CBS. And we formed a, 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 a company, and we started doing um, management and things of that nature. And I can remember my last day of going down to the garden, taking my stuff from out the locker, and going to the office, and that's how I kind of um, ended it all. Um, it was, uh, you know, it's not like I, you know, a, a, a fairy tale ending and whatnot. But at the same time, you know, I understood that you know I had to go to a different level. And you know, from all these things that haven't been in ball in 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 Baltimore and then in in New York, you know, it's made me. A different person, so to speak, you know, than the guy that went to Winston-Salem. But one of the most important things that I've done recently is that, you know, that I have a school named me in the Bronx, but it's called the Earl Monroe New Renaissance Basketball School. And what we're teaching at that school is not so much as playing basketball, but the thing in a nutshell is that all the ancillary things that happen in the game of basketball, these kids can learn about. And I think that, in a nutshell, is going to bode well for in their lives because it's not about playing basketball for most of these kids. It's about what they're going to do after basketball. I mean, you've done so many things. I mean, you started a candy company. Um, <laughs> you were on the President's Council for Physical Fitness. Um, one of the things you're most passionate about is diabetes health. Um, you've done a lot of things to help research in the field of diabetes. I mean, all of that has led to the fact that not only are, were you a great basketball player, but you were also a great humanitarian. Um, you worked with the East Harlem Tennis Federation. Uh, you've done so many different things to help the community in New York, Earl. I mean, how proud of you are how proud are you of that set of legacies? Well, I'm pretty proud of it. I, I think that I probably could have done more. Um, <laughs> but the thing in a nutshell, I mean, it's like my brother-in-law. He he has a, uh, um, a, a, a thing called the Crown Heights Youth Collective that I've been on the board of since 1979. And it's, you know, it's just... A big thing that, you know, you know, as we go along and we live our lives and the things that we do, we don't really plan these things. But as they come up, we do them and we don't know what the, you know, what the results of all these things are. But the thing in a nutshell is that I felt as though that hopefully somewhere along the line, we've helped change some lives and we've helped some people in their lives. 
And uh, certainly these things that I've been able to do has helped me as well. Well, Earl, the journey, the Earl Monroe journey certainly isn't over. You're still doing things, so many things, as you said, the school, um, all of the things, all of your family aspects, your grandsons, your kids. Um, you're a man that should be proud of everything he's done. You're a man that resonates with this great city, with the great sport of basketball. Um, you are just one of the few individuals that not only was a magician on the court and dazzled us, but you've shown off the court what kind of a magician you could be in helping others. So it has been a pleasure to have you. Thank you for sharing your life's journey with us. And hopefully we'll be hearing a lot more of you and your activities in the future. Well, thank you, Lana. Appreciate you. And uh, thanks for having me on.